So welcome everyone to our Road to Abolition event on transformative justice with Dr. Sarcis Mendez. We would like to inform everyone this event will be recorded. If you wish to not be recorded, please mute your mic and turn off your camera. This recording will be on multiple media platforms. We will be having a Q&A section towards the end of the event. If you have any questions for Dr. Mendez, please message them to our facilitator, Lauren, privately in the chat. We want to inform everyone on our ground rules. Please keep your mic on mute when you're not speaking. Please use inclusive language in discussions. Use I statements and please speak from your own experiences. Don't generalize. And lastly, respect another person's right to have opinions and thoughts that are different from yours. We want to introduce the facilitators of today's event. I am Haley Gomez. I use they, them pronouns. I'm majoring in psychology with a minor in women and gender studies and cinema and television. I serve as the media content creator for the Women, Gender and Queer Studies Student Association, otherwise known as Rijikasa. We also have our secretary of Rijikasa, Lauren, who uses any pronouns with positive intent. They're majoring in women and gender studies. We have our co-president of Rijikasa, Alejandra, who uses she, her pronouns. She's majoring in women and gender studies. And lastly, we have our other co-president, Liana, who uses they, them pronouns, and they are majoring in women and gender studies also. The Women, Gender, and Queer Studies Student Association wants to thank the Women's and Adult Reentry Center for collaborating with us on this event. It's my pleasure to introduce to everyone our honorary guests of today's discussion on transformative justice. Our guest is the vice chair and associate professor in the women and gender studies and queer studies and an affiliated faculty of the African American studies department here at Cal State Fullerton. She's a popular educator, organizer, decolonial feminist philosopher and founder of the Campus Transformative Justice Project a project committed to abolitionist and intersectional approaches to addressing sexual assault and gender-based gender violence in universities and institutions of higher learning. She also serves as a consultant, facilitator, and strategist to organizations seeking to address systematic harm, racism, and anti-Blackness, and invested in building life-affirming and healing options for a diverse range of survivors. They are also a founding member of the Langston TJ Collective, she is the Brukua and child of factory workers and a Bruja by ancestry, who lives to inspire the next generation of troublemakers and believers that a better world is possible. Let's give a big Zoom virtual welcome to Dr. Mendez. Hey, what's up, what's up, people? So, so yeah, I, I wrote that I'm a Boricua because I want folks to know I'm Puerto Rican. Um, and a bruja, because I need y'all to know I'm a witch. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I believe we're going to do this where it's like a Q&A, right? Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, so I just, I brought slides for when it's time for, you know, like when you all say, what is transformative justice? And then I'll just do the slides. <laughs> all right, so I'll start off. So my first question is, what is transformative justice? What is it about? So <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Somebody needs to give me um, share screen, share screen uh, privileges real quick. 
Hold on, let me just get this together. Okay, you should be good. Okay. Okay, let's see here. Share screen. All right, here we go. All right. So TJ, TJ 101. Um, so what I'm going to give you is like the overarching understanding, and then we can get into the nitty gritty in the Q&A. So like, what does it look like concretely? Um, so the first quote I'm going to actually give you is from Mia Mingus from the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. And she and she she talks about it as basically a political framework and an approach for responding to violence, harm and abuse. At its most basic, TJ seeks to respond to violence without creating more violence. Why that matters is because a lot of people are like, all right, like if you do something harmful in the community, I'm just going to kick your ass. Right or like do some street justice. And so transformative justice is not about street justice. So that's why she specifically names, it's, it's a way to respond that does not create more violence. And if you don't have the capacity to stop the violence altogether, then the goal is to do some type of harm reduction to lessen the amount of violence happening, okay? Um, Okay, so that's Mia Mingus down here on the, in the corner. Um, and hopefully, I'm gonna see if I can get her to come speak for the Feminist Symposium. That's just a little plug. I don't know if I'm gonna get her, but I'm gonna try, y'all. I'm gonna try. She's fire to watch. She's an incredible speaker. All right. Um, so another way of thinking about transformative justice actually um, comes from a definition produced by Kelly Hayes and Miriam Kaba who are, I mean, Miriam Kaba is like a major force in the transformative justice movement. And she defines it, and they define it as um, a community-based approach and process that was developed by anti-violence activists of color. So here she's, she's acknowledging that these strategies and practices and processes have come from people of color who are outside of systems, who are in the margins, right? And who wanted to create um, responses to violence and harm that do what criminal and punishment systems fail to do. So here you see that the, the definition of TJ includes a critique of the criminal justice system. And what is it that the criminal justice system fails to do? Well, it fails to build support and more safety for the person harmed. So, TJ approach wants to build support and more safety for the person harmed. It wants to figure out how the broader context was set up for this harm to happen. So you want to understand what's happening it like what's happening in the structure in the relationships or whatever that makes the harm possible in the first place. Because that's the thing you want to figure out how to change that context so that the harm is less likely to happen again in the future. Why that matters is because there's no one set way to do that. It really depends on what's happening in that particular situation. So transformative justice is not a one size fits all model or approach to harm. Okay, and last but not least, um, you can think of it as a philosophy, you can think of it as an ethic and as a framework you can think of it as a bunch of practices put together 
And sometimes it's even a process like around a specific case that addresses harm outside of state systems, okay? Outside of state systems, and you can think of the broad range of state systems. State systems isn't just about police. It can also be about social services, right? So, so that's important because oftentimes these systems that are set up to protect marginalized people are also set up to surveil them. So TJ is trying to think outside of state systems. Um, it, can be, it can be thought of as working with others in the community to make things right, or to get into right relationship, or to create justice together. So again, folks are deciding what's gonna make things right together, right? Folks are getting together to try to figure out how to, how to make the relationship right or how to, how to figure out what justice means to us together. And overall, if you learn nothing else about this, TJ is an abolitionist vision for addressing harm. So it is not bolstering any state systems. It's not like, oh, let's find the right resources and funnel you in there. Let's send you to the shelters. It's not about that. It's just, it's trying to figure, it's trying to get community people to come together to figure out how to collectively stop, lessen the harm. Okay. So that's just an overview. And I'm going to leave it there for a minute, just so that you, that's just folks can get like a little taste of the larger philosophy that guides uh, TJ. Okay, I think we have a few more people coming in now. Okay, I hope I didn't go too fast. No, oh, okay. and we're gonna get more into nitty gritties anyways. Nice. Okay, let me get these. Hi, welcome to everyone who's joining in. Alrighty, so I'm. thank you for that intro to TJ. Um, we also want to know, how did you get involved in transformative justice? Like, how did you find out about it? You know, I found out through you. So <laughs> <laughs> how did you find out about it? So, you know, I have been longtime friends with people who were in the transformative justice movement. When I first, first heard about it, I heard about it um, because I had gone to a conference organized by Insight, uh, Women of Color and Trans, uh, and non-binary folks of color against violence against those communities, right? So Insight was this organization that had, I think now we're looking at almost 20, 20 years where they have been putting together conferences, basically arguing for a world without prisons. And that was long before that was long before I um, got into grad school and became a professor. So I learned as a student, and also I was um, part of a collective when I did get into grad school, there was a group of folks that were working with critical resistance, which is also an abolitionist group. Um, and if you like, you can look them up, critical resistance has a lot of fire stuff out, you know, websites, resources and all that stuff. And they were in New York City at the time because I went to grad school in upstate New York. Um, they were trying to organize what they were referring to as harm-free zones in New York City. So like, what would it mean to like, you know, 
get an entire building or a block in New York City where cops were not allowed, right? Where, where so that's what, that, that's what the project was at the time. So when I was in grad school, I was working with people who were working with folks in New York City, trying to imagine how we could, how we could create a harm-free zone. Mm-hmm. And there was these workshops about that and, and so on and so forth. Um, at that insight conference I, was where I actually met Mia for the first time. Um, and uh, Mimi Kim, who's also a really important figure in the transformative justice movement. Um, I met her after, actually, yeah, I, I met her at one of those conferences too. <laughs> um, no, I met her in, in, in Long Beach when I moved here for my job, but we started thinking politically together. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was already s- sold on the idea of, you know, imagining a world where we didn't have to rely on police to solve our problems. Right. And part of the reason why I was sold on that was because I had very formative encounters with police as a child. Like I've had, I've had police accuse you know, my brothers of crimes, I've had them negatively impact my family. Um, I've had social services, police and surveil my family. I grew up on welfare and, and they were constantly surveilling us as a family. And so I just had these very formative encounters with state systems and knew that even though their, their discourse was to protect marginalized peoples, that was not my personal experience with them. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to be sold on the idea of like imagining a world without police. I was like, I'm on board on that idea. <laughs> Where the TJ part comes to the fore for me is the, the it's not enough to say, let's get rid of police. Mm-hmm. The real work is figuring out what we're going to do to solve our problems in, in, in its place, right? So the real work of transformative justice is, is about building options, right? It's not about getting rid of something, it's about building options. And so when I, when I got the job at, um, I was working at Michigan State and there was a sexual, a very, very prominent sexual assault case that everybody had heard about. I'm sure many of you have heard about it. It was the Larry Nasser case mm-hmm. where the he was a gymnast coach and he had sexually assaulted now over 500 survivors had come forward in, in, in the course of this case. But before that case blew up, I had, I had been questioning the way Title IX was responding to survivors of color on campus. And I was concerned with the ways survivors of color didn't feel comfortable to to, to come forward because of the way those institutions or, uh, or you know, those sort of structures were not holding them, right? And protecting them in the, so, so in the process, it was, you know, I've had to like refine my TJ position because it's hard to make an argument to abolish pol- police in a place where, um, you know, a, a doctor, had sexually assaulted so many young people because they were they were children, right? So, but I think that 
in that process, I just became more clear that those survivors went through the criminal justice approach and have actually not gotten what they consider to be justice, mm -hmm. even though he went to jail. So, so Nasser went to jail, but something was left kind of unresolved as they moved through the criminal justice system. And what, I'm just gonna say this last thing and then we can move to the next question because I know I'm like on, on a roll. Um, <laughs> the thing that really struck me about that was at first I was like, is this about abolishing prisons mm -hmm. or the whole machinery that sucks up all the resources that should be going to survivors? So what became so prominent in that case was that millions and millions of dollars were spent on trying to figure out who was responsible for what instead of funneling those resources to survivors and their healing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if we would have spent that money on some TJ, some other stuff, we would have had way better results than what we got, which was ultimately this dude got put in jail, everybody got fired, but that money went to what, what? not to the survivors. Right. So yeah, that's how I got into all this. <laughs> uh, how it's, you know, when I was thinking about TJ, one of the things is how do we implement it into our daily lives? I know for me, you've helped me implement it into my family dynamic. How if, you know, we start small, how can we start somewhere to implement mm -hmm. it constantly? I think one, one major component about transformative justice is how do we get people to be less afraid of accountability? How do we get people to volunteer into accountability? So like, think about any moment where you messed up. And I mean, we're human, we're bound to mess up, right? Everyone has the capacity. I, I know this is going out, but I have to watch my mouth. I'm trying not to curse, but everyone has the capacity to like really harm other people. Given the right conditions, we're all capable of hurting someone else. In those instances, how often have you stepped up and taken account, like volunteered into accountability? If the answer is not that often, <laughs> then that's step one. Step one is practicing very low stakes accountability. And you can think about all the daily things that you either lie about or <laughs> and, and, and I'm no shade, eh? no shade. Like I'm saying that as someone who, who has, who has, who has been very flexible around the concept of lying. <laughs> um, because, and I, and I, and I want to nuance this. I actually want to nuance this because at different moments as a child, I had to learn how to lie to the state. When, when, you know, and I'll give you a very concrete example. I remember so vividly when I was like, eight years old and someone from welfare came into my house because they used to do these they i don't know if they still do them but they used to do these house visits so if you were receiving money from welfare you were not allowed to have a partner because the assumption was that if the state is giving you money that is replacing the role of the quote-unquote husband so these women were not allowed to have male partners 
So I remember vividly the, the woman from uh, the welfare office asking me, asking me about my mother's sex life and basically asking me to like, you know, wrap my mother out, which would mean all of us losing the, the, the resources we would have to eat food. <laughs> so <clears throat> I learned real young to lie. <laughs> but also like the audacity of asking a child that, mm-hmm. right? Like what? That's just bananas. So, so, you know, I think there's moments where marginalized people have to have to lie for their own survival. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about moments where, you know, and I use this example all the time in my class where like, you go to a party, you break a glass at someone else's house, and you don't say not nary one word. <laughs> you know, you, you throw the glass away and you look around and see who saw. <laughs> and and that's, that's the, precisely the kind of moment where you can practice accountability. You can step into that because what's the worst that's gonna happen to you? Someone's gonna be disappointed. Okay, but then you have an opportunity to learn how to make that right. And if that means buying that person another glass or getting, getting them something else they might want, it's an opportunity for us to practice, which the more we practice, the easier it gets. And we're less likely to cause harm because we're in that practice. Because we know that every time we do harm, we're going to have to step into that accountability. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that it does is it makes you a lot more understanding of people who cause major harm and have a hard time stepping into accountability. And, and I say this all the time because when, when, we, when we talk about sexual assault in particular, we're like, why can't this person just acknowledge that they sexually assaulted me? That is a huge admittance when we can't even acknowledge that we broke a glass at somebody's party. So we become a lot more um, empathetic to what we're asking of people when we say take accountability, right? And so I say, find small ways to practice these little, you know, um, these, yeah, to practice accountability. And actually there's a, there's a really great, um, there's a really great piece by Sharon, um, I think Shannon, I'm sorry, Shannon Darby, I think her last name is, um, who's also a transformative justice person, uh, movement activist. And she writes on like finding small ways to practice accountability. So that's a good resource if, if you wanna learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think accountability is step number one um, that's something that's very hard, um, I think, for most people, especially in this society. <laughs> you know, we're always taught to do those little white lies. So um, that's Especially when you don't do your homework. <laughs> Hashtag, I'm just saying. No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. <laughs> um, so when we think about accountability, how can we reframe justice? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I think that when you all think of accountability, right? When you think of like, what, what does accountability look like? Mm-hmm. 
if most of your answers are about punishing someone, shaming someone into submission, in part, that's because we have been so shaped by a carceral logic and frame. So all of, all of our versions of justice have been shaped by the criminal justice system, right? And that's really hard to undo. I think that we are at a moment where we have to radically expand what we think, how we think justice can look. And I'm gonna give you an example. And this example actually comes from Philly Stands Up, which also has a great piece. I think it's on your list of readings from the class, but. Yes. Uh -huh. You know, Philly Stands Up was this organization in Philadelphia um, that was trying to address sexual harm in, I think in the punk community there, in the music scene there. And um, a lot of the people who, the, the men actually who worked with the men who were causing harm in this particular instance. So, so there was these, these um, musicians who had come through and sexually assaulted a few people. And many of them were like precarious in terms of their living situations, right? And Philly Stands Up was like, okay, what, what kinds of conditions do we need for accountability? Like what makes accountability more likely than not? And one of the things they were like discovered was like, if someone's couch surfing, if they don't have a place to live, they're probably not gonna be in a place to think about somebody else's feelings because they're in survival mode. So their approach to getting justice included things like getting this person a job and housing. And I know like that seems counterintuitive, right? Cause you're like, man, this person caused harm and we're out here trying to get this, this person a job. Like that makes no sense. That's not punishment. That's not consequences. But their argument in some ways is that if someone is just is in a place where they can only think about their own survival, they're not going to have the capacity and the bandwidth to do the hard work to transform their behavior to step into accountability. And think about how hard it is when you do something to hurt someone else and all that comes up with that. I don't, I don't know about you all, but I know for me, like, there's moments where you're like, you feel guilty, you're like sad, you're like, you feel ashamed and mm -hmm. it's, you want to do something, you want to, you want to make it better. You, you want forgiveness, even if you don't, you know, quote unquote, deserve forgiveness, right? Um, and I want to mention this, nothing in transformative justice suggests that you have to forgive the other person, the person who's harmed you. Nothing in transformative justice demands that. I think that it's just an opportunity for us to think about how we want to redefine justice in our own healing, right? Um, and so in this case, the criminal justice system would have just put that person in jail. Whereas Philly stands up was like, all right, let's see if we can create the conditions. And then once we have those conditions, we can do the hard work of dealing with the shame and the sadness and all that other stuff of what it would mean to step into accountability. And again, all of this 
is efforting, like moving towards an accountability that's voluntary. And that's crucial. We don't want to coerce um, accountability because if it's coerced, it's not going to take root. Mm-hmm. And, and we want it to take root. We want it to like, we want somebody to be motivated to want to do this work, right? And so how do we create the conditions for that? And that's part of the, that's part of the, the most creative aspects of transformative justice. I think transformative justice is a very creative way of thinking about transformation and justice and what, mm-hmm. that, look, what that can look like. What, what do, what can conditions look like? What, what does that, what could that entail? That's a really great question. I think it depends on the person harmed, right? So Mm -hmm. I can give you an example. And so sometimes it looks like the person who was harmed wants an acknowledgement, right? And an acknowledgement like to them and this is this is where it gets i think this is where we have to be very nuanced about about what we ask for because sometimes a survivor might want a public apology okay and where that gets difficult is that if transformative justice is about addressing harm without causing more harm a public apology might end up serving as evidence in a criminal justice system, Hmm. in a criminal justice court case. So the demand for a public apology might actually put the person who caused harm into a precarious situation and put them into a, a, a harm's path. Now, there are some survivors that want that. And I'm not, I'm not gonna take that away from survivors who want vengeance. That's, but that's not transformative justice. Okay, um, so, so, you know, I think that there's nothing that suggests that a survivor needs to care what happens to the person who harmed them. I'm not, at, I'm not saying that at all. Um, but I think that because transformative justice is interested in creating the conditions where the behavior will stop, the idea is, is that punishing somebody doesn't necessarily lead to the behavior stopping. And, and why do transformative justice activists think that? Well, let's look at the criminal justice system. We currently incarcerate folks who, who do sexual harm. And at the rate of incarceration that we have in this country, you all should feel very safe <laughs> walking down the street. Do y'all feel safe? (laughs) So (laughs) if the answer to that is no, that means we've spent billions and billions of dollars in a system that actually doesn't transform the behavior. And when people are getting punished and, and, and you can think about the times you've gotten punished. Think about the times you got punished from outside. Did that necessarily make you change your behavior? Some of the reactions could be like, you just mad at the person who punished you, <laughs> right? And so when you, when you put people into a, a system that's 
as violent as as our our current prison system, which is extremely violent. The folks who are entering that system, they're not thinking about the people they caused harm. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that in no situation, people like that in all situations, those who were incarcerated didn't have a, a shift in behavior. I'm not saying that, but more likely than not, they're exposed to so much harm and violence within the prison system that they don't have the bandwidth or capacity to think about the person they harmed. Cause that's, you're just in survival mode at that point, right? You just watching your back. So, you know, I think that, that some of the asks that I've seen have been like that person um, doing, submitting to a process where they meet every week to talk about what it was that led them to that harmful behavior. So for example, was it toxic masculinity? So maybe they meet with people and talk about toxic masculinity. Maybe they identify the behaviors, their behaviors that were toxic. And then they have an accountability group of people who can help support them to move towards changing those behaviors when they show up where those people can be like, yo, you told me to look out for this thing and you're doing the thing that you told me to look out for. So I'm, 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 I'm helping you. How, what do we need to do to alter that, to, to keep working on that behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Some of it could be about asking for reparations, right? So people have asked for their own therapy to be funded, the person who was harmed, by the person who harmed them. And this is where the job thing comes into place. So you know that thing where it was like, oh, this person who was couch surfing? If the person who was harmed wants the person who harmed them to pay for their therapy, that person needs to be resourced enough to do such a thing. And so the TJ crew might help that person get a job so that the person who was harmed can get their reparation. Mm -hmm. You see, so it's like, it's like thinking very, very creatively about what healing might look like. Mm -hmm. I know that some, some have asked for that person to like talk about their, the encounter between them with other people and share that story out um, and share that story with others and deal with the, with, with the, the looks and all of that stuff. Right. So there's a lot of different things that people could ask for and have asked for. And I, and I think, I think that our, it's up to us to reimagine what that might look like. Right. I mean, it could be like creating a mural of this harm. It could, there's so many things that people could ask for that would be healing to the person who, who was harmed. That isn't, that doesn't result in that person ending up in, in prison. I don't know if that helps, but we can, you know, it it's does. just a little taste of yeah. thinking about, mm, what could it be? Yeah. <laughs> Man, this, this is actually a submitted question that I think would do well. For the people who are, who are convinced that violence is always the best course of action, um, how, how do you work around with even talking about this as an option? And alternatively, for people who also hold a lack of trust towards any system to help them with their problems, what is the way that transformative justice could probably shift that, that uh, mentality? 
Well, is it okay? So I, there's two big questions there. So let's deal with the first one, and then I'll ask you to repeat the second one because I don't know that I'll remember by the time I finish. Um, <laughs> so this question of um, what do I do with folks who think violence is always the answer? You know, how we come. I think this is where TJ is a really interesting thing to think about some baseline assumptions around TJ. I think a lot of folks in, in TJ think that we're not born violent. We come to violence because we are embedded in a violent, in a violent world, right? So to me, folks who think that violence is the answer, that's like not an accident. That's not surprising. Everything around us suggests that violence is the answer, right? Um, and we also know that a lot of people have tried violence as the answer. And then what ends up happening is folks end up in this cycle of revenge that's hard, really hard to get out of. And, and I know it personally. I know what, I know what it's like to have, you know, to witness domestic violence firsthand, to see all of these, these moments where you're like, ha, someone has, to, someone has to decide not to take vengeance in order to stop that cycle. Because what I've seen, it just ends up escalating and then people end up in the hospital, right? And so, so what I think is that long before something got violent, and Mimi talks about this all the time, she has this awesome chart, right? Where she's like, long before someone ended up in the hospital, we saw a thousand little mini things where we could have intervened. But we don't respond until someone's in the hospital, right? So I think we have to, I think there's enough evidence in the world um, to, to suggest <laughs> that violence doesn't, hasn't, doesn't resolve problems. But I also think that people have to be ready to hear that, right? So, so for me, I think it's really important to work with the folks who are asking questions and are, are, are starting to go that route, but may not have the, the information, um, all the information that they need to, mm -hmm. to activate some other option, right? But it's, I think that because TJ is all about consent, it's all about people volunteering into accountability, people volunteering into this, that it's not for me to like beat you into submission with my, with my words <laughs> to get you to, to step away from violence, right? Um, if it is though to, to see like, are there opportunity, where are the opportunities for us to have that discussion in a way that isn't about me trying to like force you into my beliefs? And, and work with that um, and then work with the people who are already there because there's a lot more work to do. <laughs> it's not just about convincing people. Like We got to build stuff, y'all. <laughs> like That's where the real work's at. So, so, you know, some people will come when they see the thing is working, right? So let's build what we want to see and then have that be the have that be the argument. 
Um, what was that second question? I don't remember. <laughs> I think part of what you said might have answered it in like being able to show that something works. But I think in this case, uh, the second follow-up was about for people who already ho hold a lack of trust towards any system to help their problems, is there any way that transformative justice can possibly shift that or help help in that way? Or Well, here's the thing that I think is so important. Transformative justice is not trying to make an argument for you to believe in systems. It's not, it's not about that. It's, it's clear that a lot of the systems that currently exist are not working for people. So they're saying, actually, don't. <laughs> these systems, don't trust these systems. So TJ will probably not help you trust the system. <laughs> I think that TJ is about, is about people learning how to navigate and empowering people to, to resolve their own problems, okay? because we have become a society who only turns to experts to solve all our problems. Like we have forgotten that there were, that, that there have been historical moments. Indigenous people know this, right? A lot of these practices that, that are being used come from indigenous communities who did not rely on police systems. So we have had strategies long time strategies for addressing harm in our communities without turning to police. But we have become so reliant on police that we call cops to tell our neighbors to turn their music down. Come on, y'all. Like that's bananas, right? So, so TJ is about empowering people to resolve their own problems so that they don't have to turn to state systems. So it's not about confiding in state systems. It's about doing the relationship work so that you can confide in your community. And here community, I'm not talking about like, I wanna be very clear. And Mia Mingus talks about this all the time. Community is such a vexed word. Like, what do we mean by community? Is it like, you know, the people in the queer community? That's like so many people. <laughs> right? Is it the people in your neighborhood? Like, who are you talking about when you say this? That's why Mia Mingus came up and uh, Mia Mingus and the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective came up with that thing on pod mapping because organizing a group of people that you personally trust is a lot easier than organizing your community, whoever that may be. So, so it's about that. It's about organizing and building up the relationships with your people so that when things happen to you, you can trust that they're going to believe you. You can trust that they're going to show up and that you did the work to, to ask them <laughs> what they're capable of doing and what they're not capable of doing. And I say that, and it's a, the last thing I'll say about this and we can go to the next question. I say that because so many times, like how many of you are like, oh, if something happens to me, I know my mom's going to show up. But none of you have actually asked her if that's something she wants to do or that she has the capacity to do. You have those assumptions about brothers and sisters or cousins. And then, and I'm saying this because in my community, I'm a resource person. Whenever anything happens, people stay calling me. 
and nobody asked me if that's what I want to be doing with my time. <laughs> and, and yes, I show up, I show up, but every time I show up, it, 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 it puts a little crack in our relationship because I'm frustrated because nobody bothered to see like what I may have needed to be able to show up. Instead, I'm just expected to contort my life to, to be a resource for people. And so rather than do that, you know, if we start these conversations where we are checking in with each other about what we are and are not able to do, if, if a family member says, hey, like, like, I can't do that, that's important information, right? That, that means like, oh, I may need to do a little bit more relationship work before I start asking for all these things, right? And some of those things might be like, I'm in crisis, I need you to like cook for me for an entire week, right? Or like, I need you to post up and just sit with me. Or like some of these asks like, um, can be things that folks could easily do, but if their lives are in, in mayhem, they may not have the bandwidth or capacity to do, and you need to know that and make room for that, you know? So, yeah. Um, I'm just gonna read real quick uh, what Janica had put in the chat. Okay. Um, she said, I think TJ can help with trust in people and community. Trust is required in the work and the work in social change via solidarity coalition work if we create conditions for it. So, you know, um, what does, what must be done to enact something like this into everyday society? How can we move forward, especially in the revolution and movements that are going on right now? I, you know, I really, I really fundamentally believe this. I think you really have to start at home and you have to start small you have to start what you with what you have access to so really practicing low stakes accountability every day like that's step one two do the work of figuring out who your people are you can't i think if we want to show up for this political work that's outside of us like in the movement we have to make sure that our home base is solid right and it's easier for us to be like out here doing movement work and yet we're not able to tell the people we most love what we need we're not able to tell the people we most love like have conversations about consent and accountability with them and if we can't do it with the people we most love why would we expect to be able to do it with people who, who could care less about us in the world right so i say start practicing at home we can, we can start doing pod mapping in our, in, with our people. We can figure out who those people are in different settings, right? If folks wanna follow this up with a like pod mapping workshop, let's do it. Let's figure out who your people are because you're gonna need people in every place that you go. And what I mean by people is not just your homestead, but like, who's your pod at school? Who's your pod at your job? Like you need pods everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. And, and, and start thinking about not just what you want from them, but what you're willing to give. Because mm -hmm. it's so easy to be like, and I need this and I need that. But then when it's like, when folks are like, I need things, you're like, yeah, so about that, I got a meeting, <laughs> right? So like, so I would say practice 
TJ, so there's a difference between um, a TJ process and, and daily TJ practices, mm -hmm. right? And daily TJ practices are that. Like, how do we volunteer into accountability? How are we doing our relationship work so that we want to show up? Like, we volunteer into these things, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and we have our people who hold us when we're in crisis, but we also have our people who, who call us in, who support us to be better people. Yeah. And that part tends to be a little weaker because we tend to surround ourselves with people who co-sign all of our shenanigans. <laughs> and y'all know, y'all know who you are. You're like, they my friends. <laughs> yes, because they just tell you yes to everything. But you need, sometimes you need people who are like, no, that was messed up. Like, listen, like you need to do right. You need to like, that's not okay. And how can I support you to like make that better? Cause that was not okay. You know? Yeah. Um, for those who may not know, can you do a quick definition of what pods are? And yeah. we were actually thinking of doing a second workshop just solely on pods. Um, but for those who may not know, can you give yeah, a quick definition? Absolutely. So, so pods. Okay. So, um, the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective created this tool that they call pods. And I actually can share uh, uh, what, it, what it looks like, uh, the sheet of what it looks like. Give me a second. Let me see if I can pull it up right, right quick. So this is what it looks like, okay? So it's just a tool for folks to figure out how to organize their people where you're in the center, okay? and And... I'm not gonna walk it through because I want to save it for if we do a workshop, but I just wanted you to see what the tool looked like real quick, okay? But pods as an idea, it refers to a, a very specific kind of relationship. It's it's basically if you're using that to, that tool that sheet, um, it's um, who you turn to when you're when when you're in need of support. Mm -hmm. right like when you're in trouble and why that's a specific kind of relationship is because it's often not the people that you think it's going to be like in cases of like sexual assault and I talk about this all the time sometimes you're like oh I love my family I know that my mom and my you know whatever my parents would show up for me in any crisis blah 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 blah, blah. and then something happens around sexual assault and who's the last person you turn to your parents right your family so so pods kind of describe a specific kind of relationship it it's the kind of relationship where you do consent work where you where you check in around what you need but you you have you basically intentionally build up this network of support around you and why they came up with it is because pods are a lot easier to organize than your community so it was a strategic way of saying like, you don't have to organize everybody in the queer community, but you could organize like two or three folks that you're tight with to, to, to create a, a, a network of support around you. And the tool can also be used to create a network of support around accountability as well. So it's, it, it describes basically a pod is like that specific kind of relationship. So it's not your friends, it's not your posse, because if you're not turning to those people when you're in trouble, then they're not your pod. 
pods are the people you turn to when 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 stuff hits the fan you know what i'm saying <laughs> on either end like either either you need to be reeled all the way in <laughs> or you need to be held because some something went down and you need very specific kinds of support and it's organized it's not like it's not like oh we'll see what happens when i'm in trouble no 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 like you talk to these folks and you're like yo so like if i needed you to come to the hospital would you come to the hospital if i needed you to to pick me up at three o'clock in the morning from somewhere ask me no questions would you be down to do that those are the kinds of asks you put to your pod and you do that before something happens not when you're in it and you like stuck because <laughs> then that's where that's where the cracks in the relationship start to start to happen and so pod mapping is an example of a tj practice that's not the same as a process for example a process like if 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 people decided that they actually wanted to do something where the person who caused harm is in the same space with the person who harmed them and they're all sort of collectively trying to decide how to how to heal from that harm and how to move towards justice together that's a different that's another aspect of t of transformative justice and when you mention these pods like another thing that i think comes to mind because you mentioned consent is that things change, right? And so you always have to be checking up on these people, make sure if what they said six months ago is okay now too, right? Mm -hmm. I know that's right. I know that's right. Yeah. And there's and the end there's an opportunity. So there's the consent practices that are part of TJ, right? Mm -hmm. Again, trying to minimize harm. Um, and then the, the 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 useful thing about pods is that you may have one or two people who 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 could do that function now, right? But the whole point of the document is to is for you to stay identifying people who you may want to bring into that pod mm -hmm. so that your circle gets your circle of support gets bigger and bigger over time. So you so what kind of relationship work do you have to do to bring this person in right so it's it's all about getting you to like really start thinking about how to dig into your relationships instead of what we have now, which is a a, a lot of cancel culture. Someone makes you mad, chop them off. I don't care. I don't need you, whatever. And you're willing to throw away, you know, oftentimes you're willing to throw away a good number of years of work on some, on some, on some silliness, <laughs> on some silliness. Um, he looked at my man, whatever. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> whatever. On some silliness. And so, so pods is about instead of doing that cancel thing where mm -hmm. your, 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 your support network gets smaller and smaller every time you get mad, <laughs> pods are about doing the opposite, really digging in and being like, okay, I need to do re intentional relationship work. That also means actually in like confronting the conflicts. And we're so afraid of conflicts, y'all. Like TJ is, is about like getting comfortable with conflict because conflicts are actually really important opportunities for us to redefine what we value together. So if someone violated your trust, a conflict is an opportunity for you to really establish like what the, what the violation was. How do you think about trust? Okay, I didn't know that. Let's, let's re, let's, you know, 
I, I, I can adjust to that definition or actually I don't agree with that value. Maybe we can find something in between us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I think right now it's a good time to transition into our Q&A. Um, Lauren, do you have the questions ready? That wasn't the Q&A, I thought. Well, sorry, <laughs> but from the audience. <laughs> what you got, Lauren? Um, well, one of the questions was stated earlier, or it was asked earlier too, but we have another question, which is, is there a difference between restorative justice and transformative justice? Yes, there is. And you know what? I got a slide for it. <laughs> Hold on one second. Boom. Because you know what? If you stay ready, you don't got to get ready. Hold on. All right. Uh, okay, so we did that. What's the difference between restorative and transformative justice? Okay, this isn't, th just to be clear, restorative justice and transformative justice, I do not see them as mutually exclusive. I see them as on a continuum. So for me, restorative justice really functions kind of like moving us towards harm reduction, right? and transformative justice is like moving us towards abolition, okay? So in restorative justice, one of, the, one of the ways that people have thought about it is that the question that they often ask is how do we quote, restore the relationships to what they were before the harm, okay? And that's an important question to ask, um, but transformative justice says, okay, um, if, and it, it wants to address the harm and, and transform the conditions that made the harm possible. And sometimes if the relationship was toxic to begin with, or if the relationship only works when it's patriarchal or, you know, like when someone's following instructions, then we don't want to restore the, the relationships to what they were before the harm, actually. What we want to do is we want to transform that. Okay. And then the other issue with the way restorative justice is practiced in the context of the US. And just to be clear, RJ is not practiced like this in all spaces. Okay. So a lot of practitioners who, who do RJ do it in a way that is abolitionist. So I think that's important to know. However, the way it's um, been embedded in the US that how I was mentioning that like, you know, schools and all that stuff will like, you get busted for something and then they'll divert you and give you RJ as an option. And why that matters is because they're leveraging the punishment against you. Like you could get punished standard wise, or you could do this RJ process. So they're leveraging the, the punishment to get participation in RJ. And so for, from a TJ perspective, that can be coercive and that's actually can be harmful. So what we want to do is we want to create the conditions where you volunteer into that. You're not like, oh, well, I'm going to avoid this punishment by the state if I do RJ. So that's just two ways in which, like two key ways in which there's a difference between RJ and TJ in terms of how it's practiced in, in the U.S. I hope that helps clarify at least a little a little taste of it yes it does 
Um, I'm gonna. Any other questions, Lauren? No, I think those were the only two. Um, but I'm gonna add another question. Um, if there's anywhere in the world where TJ has been implemented, and what does that look like for future generations if we continue to implement it? Well, I think we need to think of transformative justice as coming from a long history of people responding to violence without state systems. So if we think of it that way, of course, TJ is being practiced all the time. TJ has been practiced by ancestors, right? Like, you know, you can think of any, any community that has never been able to turn to state systems for support are addressing harm in some way internally. So, so TJ, TJ-esque practices are, are, are practiced globally and locally, right? And of course, across the US right now, there's, there are, there's a movement to, 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 to bolster up the, the folks who are holding down communities by doing this work. And they're doing it on a completely volunteer basis. Much of this work is completely unresourced, right? Um, in addition to whatever else people are holding down to survive, right? So yes, if we think of the practices, people are practicing this all the time. If you're looking for like a 1-800 hotline to call, it, it, to do like a, a thing, you're not going to find that because part of this work is about addressing harm by a community. And here's the thing about the criminal justice system. The criminal justice system criminalizes some of these interventions, right? So like, for instance, you're wanting to address, you could be understood as an accessory to a crime for not reporting, right? So like, there are ways in which you're, this work has to necessarily be done, you know, in, in, in ways that don't make the practitioners um, targets of the state also for wanting to help their own communities. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, and, and you can see that in cases where like mandated reporting comes in, right? So if, so if a, if a, if a, a an undocumented student comes to me and says, I do not want the state involved. And they tell me that they were sexually harmed on campus or whatever. I'm, I'm mandated to report that. It doesn't matter that I'm an abolitionist, right? And so how do we, how do we deal with that? Like, how do we deal with, with those kinds of realities where practitioners are pressured and criminalized by the state for trying to resolve problems in their own communities. You see? So, so you're not gonna find a hotline. Folks are doing, I mean, people are sort of sharing out some of their experiences now because this is a very important moment for us to make certain kinds of demands. And I think it's not a moment to be squandered. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a moment to be squandered. We, sh we should be asking all of our institutions for, for alternatives for, for something that is not, um, that doesn't further embed the state to solve our problems, doesn't further expand our reliance on police and other state systems. Um, and, and we can think expansively about how the university 
is embedded in that as well, you know? Yeah. I'm gonna switch it over to Leana. Oh, I do wanna mention one oh, thing. Yes. Um, which is right now, if, if folks are interested in this, there's a lot of awesome websites, but I'm just mm -hmm. gonna put this one in, in the chat. It's called transformharm.org. Um, and this one was organized by Miriam Kaba. There's a lot of resources on there, but one thing that I think is happening right now is there's a lot of trainings going around. So like pod mapping trainings, K101s, um, accountability trainings. There's a lot of trainings happening right now. So if you're interested, it's really easy. It's starting to get increasingly easy to find ways to get trained up, whether you want to be um, a facilitator or want to support folks in other ways. Yeah, and uh, something I posted in the chat earlier was that me and Mingus is having an event next week on October 24th on how to give a genuine apology. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, it's free for, for, uh, for folks, um, but it gives the option to also donate money uh, yeah. so to also support the people who are doing this work, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because like I said, these folks are doing it completely unresourced. And I, I, I mentioned that and I emphasize that because the criminal justice will have you asking people for results that they themselves cannot provide, even though they are billions of dollars resourced. And these folks are completely unresourced. <laughs> so if you're like, well, what's the proof that this works? I'm going to say, you know what, start paying folks and then we'll let you know. <laughs> Um, actually, um, and this usually gets covered uh, by, uh, for those who might have this question, how, what do we do in the cases uh, for the murderers, the rapists, right? The high level crime ones that people usually go to, or even how you mentioned where TJ gets implemented within people within our community or pod, like usually people we know, how, how we resolve that with people that we don't know, right? The, the, the idea of like strangers who might you know that's that's a really that's a really good question and i think that i'm not going to say that there's an infrastructure in place for dealing with stranger harm you know like sorry i'm just going to plug in my computer because i don't want it to die in the middle of this um right so so i think that uh tj is really kind of thinking about how do we address um, harm within our community. So people we are currently in relation to, right? And, and a, lot of, a, lot of our, a lot of the harm that many of us experience, experience at the hands of people we actually care about. So even addressing that is a huge portion of, of, of harm. I think to some level, um, we don't have that many, um, we don't have that many options Although I will say in specific, in specific instances, like at protests, for instance, where there's a likelihood of you experiencing harm by a stranger, right? In the context of a protest, cause you know, like counter protesters or whatever who come at you and all this other stuff, people have organized uh, um, safety teams before going out to, to protests, right? People are trained themselves up in de-escalation, people train themselves up in formations, right? 
to be able to, to sort of like, it's a preventative mode. So, so people are thinking about it in those ways. And I think there's a lot of ways that we can use TJ practices to prepare ourselves for harm from strangers. There's a few things that people are trying to build up now. They don't yet have the capacity, but um, one of the things that's happening right now in LA and in Long Beach is what um, they're calling community alternatives to 911. So CAT 911. And I think that the hope there is that to be able to build up the kind of infrastructure that if you did call for assistance, someone could come out that wasn't police, right? And so what kind of community folks are down for that kind of work? And that's not everybody, right? There's some people who have those kinds of um, trainings and are willing to, who are very good at de-escalation, who don't know how to, who, who know how to deal with mental health issues, right? And respond. Um, so I think right now folks are in the process of building. And the more people are part of that building, the better, right? The more minds and imaginations we have about what's needed, what are the unmet needs here, um, the better. Because, and, and this is a really important question when we think about, when we think about crime and punishment and things like that, or harms even, you know, we, ne we never stop to ask, what are the unmet needs of the person causing the harm? Right? And, and I say that not because I think we have to, in order for us to believe that people have the capacity tr to transform, we have to believe that they're human. And I think that's hard when we encounter severe violence. I think that's hard to, to be like, because the first thing we want to do is make that person a monster, right? And we make them a, a monster and then we distance ourselves. So we get to understand ourselves as good because we are juxtaposing our goodness to their evilness, you know? So I think that there's this, this this thing to like this moment where we can start to think what are the unmet needs here and and i'm thinking about people who like you know if you've ever been robbed by someone who was hungry you know or you know got jumped by someone who was hungry like okay if we had addressed that unmet need that harm would not have happened via a stranger or people who like you know, beat you up because they're trying to get some property because they, they want to be able to sell that property because they need money for something else. What are the unmet needs there? Right? And we could do a lot more to address unmet needs as opposed to building things that we don't need. We build a lot of, we spend a lot of money on things we don't actually need and don't address human, human needs. And right now, I'll tell you one of the major human needs is housing. We're going to see a major crisis in housing. We're already starting to see it. People are getting evicted because of COVID. And, and I can see it being built up along the freeway. The tents are getting, there's more tents every day, right? So with that, we're going to, we're, we're inevitably going to see um, harm amongst, you know, like stranger harm, right? Folks that you're not in relation to who may cause harm because there's a lot of unmet need. 
So how do you practice TJ? This is another example. You start advocating for things that address human needs. <laughs> That's what you fight for, right? Um, and you work against things that create conditions of precarity. So that's another, another front. We don't all have to be at the like, there's a lot of battlegrounds that will help us move towards a world with less violence and a world where we don't need police, where we don't have to rely on police. Right. Um, I'm gonna, thank you for that. I'm gonna open up to the Zoom if there's any last questions, comments um, to ask or comment about Dr. Mendes's um, Q&A right now. Nada? Yeah. We're good? <laughs> also, your mic is fire. I want one. <laughs> I'll send you the link. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. You want to do a podcast? What's going on over here? <laughs> Janica, go ahead. Um, how do we get more buy-in um, on a widespread level? I know it's just, we're still building, we're still forming, and it has to be organic. But how do we work towards buy-in? Because a lot of these systems that are connected are going to require buy-ins. Not systems, but like a lot of the things that need to be able to address this are going to require, like you said, the more people to build this, like we're going to require more buy-in. I, I, you know, I think that you, you have to start where you are. I, here's what I think. When, as organizers, and I, and I think this happens all the time, people overshoot their goal of organizing. Like, we want to organize everybody. You don't have access to everybody. You have access to five people. Start <laughs> with the five people, right? And, and what I mean by that, too, is like, TJ only works if we're, if we're doing relationship building. And relationship building isn't just about the hard work of, like, you know, I think sometimes when, when we're dealing with social justice issues, everybody thinks you got to be all sad and depressed and angry and stuff. Like, no, like this work, if you're doing it well, can be super joyous, honestly. Like when you, when you start doing TJ in a way that's sustainable over the long haul, that means like hanging out with your friends so that you are building trust. You said trust is, is mandatory. Sure, trust is mandatory, but often we demand trust without earning it. How do we earn trust with each other? That doesn't happen just because we decide to trust somebody. That happens very slowly over time. That happens when y'all are doing that, like Netflix, watching a movie together, and then somebody tells you something that's like really vulnerable because the movie inspired it, and that wouldn't have happened if y'all weren't chilling together right? That happens when you're playing cards and you're like, oh my God, this thing happened. And like, suddenly you're like learning things about each other that contribute to building trust. The, the collective that I work with in Lansing, which is when I was working in Michigan, we've been building for two years and have not done any cases, like not full on cases. Why? Because it took that long for us to build trust with each other. We have to meet each other's people. I have to know who you're like, they have children. They got to, you know what I'm saying? I got to meet their kids, their husbands. Like, you know what I'm saying? We have to like, like learn to like 
kind of love each other to some extent because transformative justice is about love, if nothing else. It's about loving in a very expansive way, loving people enough to be able to give them an opportunity to transform their behavior. When you don't love somebody, it's easy to throw them out. So now you also gotta be vulnerable. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And 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 if you're not, if you're not able to be vulnerable, right? And this is an important thing that you're saying, because a lot of us aren't. A lot of so people who have to survive a lot of violence and harm aren't out here with their hearts on their sleeves. Hell to the naw. You better back it up. You know, like no. So but you can't you can't hold other people like to some extent like i think there's a give and take there there's a give and take there otherwise you end up being the person that's holding everybody but nobody can hold you and that is a recipe for burnout and collapse and if you collapse and if you burn out you you're no good to no one <laughs> right? No, you, you can't help anybody if you're doing like that. And I'm saying that as someone who definitely finds myself in that position often, right? So how can I show up in ways that are vulnerable? Who can I be vulnerable with, right? It is my work to do. I cannot put that on someone else. If I have trouble with vulnerability, then part of my TJ practice means going to therapy, doing what I need to do so that I learn how I learn those skills too. Because if if I if you're in like if you're not able to be vulnerable, you're also not able to take accountability. Accountability demands vulnerability. Right. Dr. Lee, you have a question? Hi everyone. Hi, Hi Dr. Mendez. Dr. Lee. <laughs> Thank you for an awesome presentation. Uh, I had just a question about where do you where do we start? Where do we go from here? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so so um, I, I was telling folks a, a little bit earlier to to start to start with your to start with your people, you know, if it means organizing one or two people that are close mm -hmm. to you to start having these conversations around consent, even to start having conversations about what kinds of support you might need and what kinds of support you're willing to give others. That's just a very small, concrete way. One or two people. That's easy to do, right? even just one person, you'll see that as you try to start having these conversations with people, all the skills you get. Because first of all, it's awkward. And I'm telling you because I've had these kind of, like in my family, mm -mm. you know, Puerto Ricans ain't gonna be sitting around the, you know, talking about, oh, um, what kinds of consent? <laughs> like it just, like just even introducing the conversation was weird and awkward. But now it's part of our practice. And it's so interesting to see how, you know, like folks who didn't have the practice, it just takes one person to initiate it and to really just start walking with each other and to make yourself vulnerable enough to, to, to accept the side eye when people looking at you like you're weird because <laughs> they're gonna look at you like you're weird and that's okay. That's part of the TJ practice. We gotta start somewhere. And so, yeah, like start having these conversations around values even with, with, with someone that's close to you. Like, what is it that you value? Why, what does that value look like to you? 
So there's a lot of opportunities. And again, practicing low stakes accountability with your people, like when you mess up. And I think with your family, it's really hard to practice accountability because sometimes when you're all out here trying to be all like, I'm sorry, they really come for you. They come for you. They're like, you see, you're always like this. And you feel like you're getting beat up, beat up every time you try to take accountability. And then you get mad because you're like, I'm trying to say I'm sorry. Listen, it's part of the work because we have to model what we want to see. We have to model what we want to see. And if we don't step up to that, we can't ask other people to do it. It just like, what are you expecting if you, if you can't even do it for like small things? So there's a lot of opportunities to just step into it. You know, I hope that answers your question. Yes. I think that's the, just to give some perspective, this is something I've been doing with my own family and having the conversation and I could already see the improvement of the communication, um, especially with my mom. I love my mama, but I do want her to be about my, be on my pod. I want her to be a part of that. And a part of that was having difficult conversations with her of things that I would want if I was in a situation and not what she would think as a mother. So I think that's important to distinct to when you're doing, when you're thinking about this, you have to think about what you want too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's, an on, it's ongoing work. It's an ongoing process, but it the community it gets better along the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I so if anybody doesn't have any other uh, comments or questions, we're gonna start the closing. Mm-hmm. Any last questions, anyone? Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Mendez, for this talk. I think we're all going to leave with a lot to process, a lot to think, a lot to read. Um, We'll be sharing a PDF of articles about transformative justice on our link tree in the bio of our Instagram, which is at CSUF underscore Wichikasa, and that's W-G-Q-S-S-A. and yes, thank you so much to the Women and Adult Reentry Center for collaborating with us on this event. Um, to, if you feel like anybody, if you'd like to share this um, conversation with anyone, the recording will be on our Spotify and Titan Radio and YouTube. So once all that is put up, once all that is put up, we will be posting that on Instagram. Um, stay updated with our events, um, subscribe to our newsletter, and yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Mendez. Thank you all. These questions were incredible. Y'all are fire. I look forward to the next thing, which I'm sure we'll probably be doing some like little pod mapping and stuff. I see, I see y'all got plans for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, if you're willing. If you're willing. <laughs> of course. Um, I also wanted to thank Rosalina. Uh, they had to leave a little bit early because of their connection and the Women's Center as well. So uh, you can find more information on Instagram as well um, at TSUF uh, underscore uh, W-A-R-C. And uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and thank you again, Mendez, uh, Dr. Mendez, for doing this with us and uh, hopefully provide more information for people who are curious, right? Yes. Thank you all for coming out.
Yes, thank you to everyone who came. I see a lot of familiar faces and um, we will keep you updated through our, if you haven't already signed up, our email newsletter through Wichikasa and um, our Instagram, we post everything on there. So, And for those of y'all who have not taken women gender studies classes, I just want you to know that me and Dr. Lee are out here. So please come hang out with us. I just had to do a little plug for, for women's gender studies. Yes. You know <laughs> I haven't had an opportunity. I know, with everything being virtual. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Mendez. It was so nice talking to you. Um, if anybody else doesn't have anything to say, have a beautiful day, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.